0: Welcome to Code Green, the climate smart health professional. In this series, we're talking curriculum. We'll be exploring the intersection of climate change and health through illustrative patient cases developed by climate health experts and through sitting down with educators around the world to learn how they've enacted climate focused curricular change. In this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Terry O'Connor, Dr. Nuzat Islam and Douglas Fritz about infectious disease and climate change. Dr. O'Connor is an instructor of emergency medicine at the University of Washington and director of the diploma in climate medicine at the University of Colorado Climate and Health Program. Dr. Islam is a second year internal medicine resident at the University of California in San Diego and a co-founder of the Planetary Health Report Card. Douglas is a second year MD-PhD student at the University of Colorado, and he's one of the vice chairs for medical students for a sustainable future. The three of them wrote this case as part of the Climate Resources for Health Education initiative, and they'll be walking us through this case-based episode as we learn together. So welcome, everyone. We're so happy to have you on the show today. Um, Before we dive into the case, just wanted to frame this discussion for listeners um, and ask you all to talk about what inspired you to write this case. How did you focus on this dimension of the climate health nexus for your case topic? And what were each of your roles in crafting this case?
1: Well, cool. Thanks, uh, Jenny. Uh, It's Terry O'Connor here. Um, Well, I'd say my short answer is that a colleague asked me to contribute (laughs) to the Climate Resources for Health Education uh, compendium. But the long answer is that in about the last 15 years or so of practice as as an emergency physician, I've worked in a number of different environments from coastal rainforests in Borneo and up into the Tibetan Plateau and into impoverished and marginalized communities in Calcutta. And during the short course of my clinical career, I've seen uh, a lot of cases firsthand of the impact of a changing planet and how that has had impact on patterns of disease. So notably, in 2019, uh, when I was last in Kathmandu in Nepal, I was interviewing some colleagues about the impact of a recent outbreak of uh, dengue there. And Dr. Prativa Pandey, who's the former president of the International Society of Travel Medicine, who's worked in the region since 93, shared um, a pretty amazing tale of a uh, overwhelmed hospital systems and community shops running out of mosquito nets uh, with a uh, outbreak they had uh, at the end of their monsoon season there. And she literally at the, at the end of that story said, you know, we just didn't used to worry about dengue here in Kathmandu. And well, since then, they're just on the heels of the largest dengue outbreak just this last uh, season in Nepal ever. So it seems intuitive that we're seeing a epidemiological shift here. And I've been pretty motivated to try to lean into the problem.
2: This is NewsHot. Thanks again, Jenny, for having us. And it's really great to connect with Dr. O'Connor and Douglas again as well. For how I got involved in this project... Well, in medical school, I was involved in various projects, focusing in on the climate and health nexus, including some local ones and others with a little bit more of a broader reach through the Planetary Health Report card and Medical Students for a Sustainable Future. And it was through the colleagues that I had met through those collaborations that I came to learn about this particular project through the Climate Resources for Health Education group. And I was really eager to participate because of my interest in medical education, the climate health nexus, and infectious disease.
3: Yeah, this is Douglas. Um, Similar to NewsHot, I uh, had been involved in the climate justice space for a while um, and was working on a lot of different things in that space. And so when the call came in from some of the early collaborators of the CHRE, um, I wanted to contribute to the case. um, And the the best way or the place that I felt the most identity focus um, towards was um, working on an arbovirus case, because my background is in this vaccine design at the National Institutes of Health, um, which is what I did before coming to medical school. So it's just a great opportunity to sort of mesh those two passions of mine and keep those things moving forward, um, and then give back at the same time.
0: Oh, well, thanks, y'all. And um, as I'm sure everyone can hear, we have a star-sided cast ready to walk through this case. And Uh, Dr. O'Connor, I hadn't realized that this was actually based upon a real-life experience you had in your clinical practice, so let's dive right in and get started with the patient presentation vignette, which I will read out first, and then our three guests will talk us through how they'd investigate and build out their differential to reach a diagnosis for this case, and we'll also weave in those climate and health connections along the way. So here's the patient presentation. Abhinav Bhajracharya is a 45-year-old cis male, otherwise healthy resident of Kathmandu, admitted in the month of September for three days of fever without improvement and progressive systemic malaise. He reports severe pain in his arms and legs, retroorbital pain, headache, and chills. Additionally, since yesterday, he's produced red-brown urine, developed a diffuse rash on his trunk and legs, and he reports pain and stiffness of his elbows and knees. So does anyone have... Initial reactions to hearing this
1: vignette uh, sounds sick. Uh, I'd say I already I ha- kind of have a high suspicion for some sort of infectious etiology, but um, as an ER doc, we're not going to we're not going to fall victim to premature closure too much. So we'll get into the differential a bit later. But um, I think I'd want to refine that differential a, a bit as best I can, um, and probably based on symptoms. So what are the pertinence on review of assist- symptoms?
0: Hmm. So the patient does not report chest pain, shortness of breath, cough, abdominal pain, changes to frequency or quality of his bowel movements. He also has no dysuria, no change in urinary frequency, no seizures, dizziness, or numbness. Uh, What would you like to know next?
2: Any part in social or family history or health-related behaviors.
0: The patient lives alone in an apartment in Kathmandu and works as an accountant. He has no history of smoking, alcohol use, or drug use. His father has hypertension and hyperlipidemia, and his mom has osteoarthritis in her knees. Anything else?
3: Yeah, what about exposure history? Um, Has he had any recent animal exposures, any sick contacts, recent travel history maybe?
0: So he denies any recent travel, contact with animals, or sick contacts, but Kathmandu has seen a recent expansion of the monsoon season. It historically lasted June to August, but now it's been spanning from May through October because of climate change. And before moving on with investigating this patient case, I did want to pause here. This detail about the changing monsoon season is an interesting piece of information that the three of our guests included in their patient vignette in the case. What made you include it here at this part of the case? And generally, as physicians, when would you want to dig deeper and consider things like natural disasters and weather patterns when you're building out a patient differential?
1: Yeah, thanks, Jenny Terry here again. I, I think what we were trying to get at here is. Kind of the concept of what recent changes in the environment, our living environment, may have augmented conditions for perhaps proliferation or spread of, I, I think in this case, an infectious disease agent, most suspiciously, or maybe increasing the relative um, vector populations that could spread certain diseases. So uh, I think, for example, recent flooding events can overwhelm uh, community septic systems and could lead to an increase of infectious agents that spread by fecal oral transmission, right? Like cholera, which is a really common one. Um, but those same flooding events can augment growth of certain pathogens, whether it be moist soil or fungal or protozoal pathogens or pools of stagnant water for mosquito populations. Uh, but I, I also think you need to think about changing seasons, um, which you mentioned just earlier there and with climate change, warmer weather is coming earlier. Right. And, uh, Climactic patterns like the monsoon are coming earlier, but also warmer weather might be creeping up into higher communities, higher elevations that aren't accustomed to those temperatures and that were previously inhospitable to certain vectors like mosquitoes. So, you know, bottom line, uh, you may need to broaden your differential based not on what the climate traditionally has been, but what we have now. And to Dr. Pandy's point, I mentioned before, we may need to worry about other things based on that new climate.
0: Got it. Thanks for going over that. So big picture sounds like red flags that might be raised for infectious disease are recent flooding that could lead to standing water or just general changes in temperature patterns and distributions that could lead to increased risk of infections. So now getting back to the case, um, we have here a man who has prolonged fever along with a suite of other symptoms. What's on the differential at this point?
2: I think I agree with Dr. O'Con- O'Connor's initial impressions And that highest on the differential is some form of an infectious etiology for his presentation. Uh, And so thinking broadly about the agents that he mentioned previously and pathogens that are also like endemic to the area. Based on all of that and his like presentation, we can think about like a persistent bloodstream infection, meningitis, given that he's been having headaches, tuberculosis, typhoid viral infections like HIV, chikungunya, West Nile, dengue maybe. Can also think about if he's got some form of like a rash or a lesion, like an exanthematous, like viral diseases as well. And then malaria is another possibility. And then that being, with all this in mind, we shouldn't really exclude non-infectious causes because right now we still don't have the full picture. Um, So thinking about other, Causes for his possible presentation include autoimmune conditions, environmental stressors that could have resulted in a fever, like a heat stroke with rhabdomyolysis, coagulopathies, substance or drug-mediated etiologies. So those are lower on the differential because it seems like based on his past medical history, he didn't have those kinds of exposures. It'd be helpful to have some physical exam findings to help focus our differential.
0: All right, so I can go ahead and read out those physical exam findings. For his vitals, he does have a fever temperature of 102.4, blood pressure 100 over 60, a pulse at 105 BPM, and respiratory rate 30. On general appearance, he's conscious but lethargic. Head and neck exam reveals taut lips, uh, low skin turgor, dry periorbital mucosa and sunken eyes, along with the dried blood visible on gums and teeth. His cardiology exam reveals regular and rhythm, um, although he does have thready pulses. His pulmonary exam is unremarkable other than increased work of breathing, um, and his abdominal exam is also uh, unremarkable. On his skin, he does have diffuse non-blanching petechiae scattered across the trunk and across his bilateral lower extremities. There's also palpable purpura on his bilateral lower extremities. And finally, he has no peripheral edema. How does this change your differential? To summarize, we have petechiae and purpura in a febrile patient with red-brown urine.
3: Yeah. So building on Dr. Islam's thoughts, I think now we have an infectious sort of etiology being presented to us, but now we have these skin findings, um, as you pointed out, that I think are more concerning for either a DIC sort of picture or a TTP sort of picture. So um, whether it's disseminated intravascular coagulation, thrombotic, thrombocenic, um, or thrombocytopenic purpura or um, some infectious cause that triggers a sort of these sort of hemorrhagic findings, um, such as um, malaria. There are viral hemorrhagic fevers that we sort of mentioned previously. Um, dengue, Bunya virus can do it, Laza can do it. Um, Marburg and Ebola, of course, are, are the sort of like pathognomonic pathogens for this. But also there's a, severe bacterial infections and sepsis and meningitis can also trigger these sort of findings that I think we would wanna be uh, concerned about at this point, we don't necessarily have the labs to suss out um, where this picture is taking us. So I think it would be better to narrow this down with some more testing.
0: Makes a lot of sense. Specifically, what kind of testing would you order to narrow down the differential further in this case, particularly targeting those conditions that you already mentioned above and that you think has the highest pretest probability in this case?
1: Yeah, Terry again here. Um, Well, following up on some good got thoughts from from douglas sarah i think um well one you've got to be conscientious about what sort of resources you have available um so we'll be talking about that a little bit but um even though this might be resource dependent on what tests you might have accessible to you depending on what sort of setting you're working at i'd say um if we want to go back to dic or disseminated intravascular coagulation um usually you, you You're going to be getting a complete blood count of CBC plus other coagulation studies like a PT, PTT, fibrinogen, D-dimer, and uh, maybe even looking for uh, manifestations on a blood smear like schistocytes of a process like this. Um, Well, that that urine was notable, uh, so you may want to put that under the microscope too. Uh, Is it actually frank blood? Uh, Is it hematuria? Is it myoglobin? Is it just really concentrated urine? Because the guy sounds pretty dehydrated, right? Um, or are there casts indicative of an end organ dysfunction or pathology like uh, acute tubular necrosis? And all of these could help you with some of the non-infectious etiologies like rhabdo and other coagulopathies that um, we had just heard about before. But I don't know. For me, infections still seems sure at the top of the list. So where and what is it? Um, where, I mean... My line of work, we commonly think of sites like lung, urine, central nervous system, the abdomen, skin, blood, and sometimes rare spots like joints, heart valves, sinuses, teeth, and in the mouth. But based on symptoms, it's sounding a bit disseminated in the blood. And obviously, it seems like the blood's affected, right? Um, So um, I'm going to ask some blood cultures too, uh, if I can. That's not going to give me the diagnosis right away, but it's good something to get brewing on the side. Um, And if it's a resource-scarce community and we might just do it the old-fashioned way and do a fixed mirror looking for malaria looking for parasites infecting those red blood cells um we're gonna be looking for infection in the urine too looking for bacteria in the microscope and he's working hard to breathe even though, even the lung exam was fine but you're probably going to get a chest x-ray if you can um that headache is put in a lumbar puncture uh and kind of my my plan and maybe even arthrocentesis if there's a hot joint someplace but we might really just get to the money quicker with some less invasive tests. So with that in regard, uh, there are some things like flu, COVID, dengue, and malaria that we've mentioned. And if you've got a rapid PCR, um, that's the way to go for sure. But we all know about these lateral flow antibody tests, right, that we've used in the COVID pandemic. And those can be considered too for some of these diagnoses. Um, Mm -hmm. And resource-scarce communities, we mentioned that smear for malaria. And um, I think it, it merits, both for historical reasons and also since the WHO still recommends it, this tourniquet test or the tourniquet fragility test, or I think it's also called the Hess test, um, which is a marker of capillary fragility. And uh, basically you inflate a blood pressure cuff about the upper arm, halfway between the systolic and diastolic pressure of your patient, leave it inflated for about five minutes and uh, release that cuff after about two minutes. And the number of petechiae, I literally counted below the antecubital fossa, um, just count them up. And it's positive if there's more than 10 PTK present. president. Um, and although the sensitivity and specificity is that it's not really great, it's like in the 70% range, I think. If that's all you got. That's all you got. So those would be things I'd be thinking about.
0: Awesome. That was really thorough and really informative. And I'm going to read out just the pertinent positives from the additional workup that's done on this patient for this case. Um, so the CBC does come back with an elevated hematocrit low platelets and low white blood cells, as well as an elevated D-dimer and most importantly, a positive dengue IgM antibody. The tourniquet test is done and it's also positive. So this essentially confirms the diagnosis of dengue and specifically for this patient, dengue hemorrhagic fever. So what is this distinction? Is that the same thing as typical dengue fever or is dengue hemorrhagic fever a different entity?
2: So dengue is a mosquito-borne viral pathogen, and it belongs to the arbovirus family. You can broadly break it down into three distinct subtypes. Your uncomplicated dengue fever is typically characterized by fever, headaches, myalgias, uh, some joint pains, and that's why sometimes it's called breakbone fever. A small subset of the patients who develop dengue can have a much more serious manifestation, and that's known as dengue hemorrhagic fever. We'll shorten that to DHF. In this, the patients can present with sort of the fever that we saw before, but also hematologic manifestations, which is why we did the tourniquet test. And this is frequently positive in patients with DHF. You can also see the thrombocytopenia as well. And as a result of all of this, can develop into internal bleeding. And so one of the other things that you mentioned was a positive hematocrit Or rather like an increased hematocrit. This is frequently due to an increased leakage of plasma into other spaces um, as a result of sort of vascular permeability that's increased in um, more severe manifestations of dengue. And this can result in hemoconcentration. And then when you have this sort of increased vascular permeability you can get thirst spacing of fluids, including like peripheral edema, pleural effusions, which is really important that if we can, we get an X-ray to evaluate for that as well. Um, ascites is another way that this can manifest as well. And then one step further from all of that is dengue shock syndrome, where there's circulatory collapse as a result of this plasma leakage and can very easily result in shock and death. And to sort of put into perspective, like, the epidemiology of all of this, uh, about 400 million people can develop dengue in a year. A quarter of that population can get sick with dengue, and then only about 5% will develop into dengue hemorrhagic fever.
0: Got it. So we have the diagnosis for our patient, DHF. At least, thankfully, he hadn't yet progressed to dengue shock syndrome. Um, But the case isn't over yet because this podcast is all about the climate health nexus, I wanna spend some time digging a bit deeper into how the changes brought about by climate change in this patient's environment predispose him to contracting this disease.
3: Yeah, so as all of our guests are pointing out, um, dengue is a great example of this nexus because it's a zoonotic disease that's transmitted by an insect vector, um these are kind of the the key cornerstone poster childs for climate change exacerbated disease when we think about mosquito-borne vector diseases and climate change, I think about three main impacts in which, uh, in in the ways in which climate change is sort of exacerbating these diseases. One is atmospheric instability and extremity, um, which we kind of talked about in this case, which is the monsoon season is extended due to warming temperatures and and nagric or, or um, Um, atmospheric instability, um, which causes uh, a longer monsoon season, more standing water, more flooding, uh, more extreme weather. The second one is expanded range of the insect vector due to a more hospitable environment. Because of warmer temperatures, um, higher altitudes are now accessible to mosquitoes, Um, And also higher latitudes are now more accessible to mosquitoes. And we see that in mountainous regions like Nepal Nepal and Kathmandu in this case, but we also see this across the world. And then the third thing I think about is just expanded seasonality. Um, Historically, if you live in a place that's temperate and it gets cold, the mosquito population drops over the wintertime. Um, But this, the shoulder periods start to be expanded um, with climate change and warming global temperatures, allowing the insect vector to continue to circulate disease um, through a a longer duration of time throughout the year. And so all these three things compound together. So we start seeing these diseases in spaces where we historically didn't. And we've seen that in a couple of notable outbreaks historically, um, obviously the, the outbreak of dengue in Nepal and then other places in South America. But even though we center this as a sort of a global health case and and an international um, infectious disease case, this is also something that's happening in the United States um, where we start to see most recently like a case of malaria in Florida, um, and then also the 2016 Zika virus outbreak um, where we had endemic Zika virus being transmitted between individuals in uh, the Southern and Southwestern United States due to expanded temperature range for that mosquito.
0: Got it. Thanks for going through all that. And it's really important context to you know, remind everyone that this is a global issue impacting not just this patient in Kathmandu, but also people living in the United States, drawing parallels to the Zika virus in Florida and many other examples. And while no one is immune to these risks, there is often a connection between environmental justice implications and populations that are Um, socioeconomically disadvantaged or at risk in other ways and increased risk of exposure to these climate exacerbated diseases. Does that kind of environmental justice lens apply to the infectious disease angle of climate and health risks as well?
1: The answer is yes. So it it immediately harkens me back and makes me think of um, Dr. Jonathan Patt's. His paper uh, back in 2007, which was a pretty seminal piece in this argument, and that those who are least responsible—I mean, those with the fewest resources and therefore um, also consume the least because of that—are um, the unfortunately most likely to suffer uh, from the adverse effects of climate change. Um, but you know, as I said before, it didn't really do the most to to cause that. So the economic engine of the global north is really largely driven. The greenhouse gas emissions that uh, have led to human induced climate change. But most of the burden, as we've here in this case, dengue, another tropical infectious disease, is in the global south. Well, for now, as we've heard with some recent cases that are spreading into the global north. Um, And in this case, certainly those with low socioeconomic status um, that don't have readily available access to mitigating uh, interventions, such as good mosquito control, you know, whether it be a sealed up home or uh, having mosquito netting at their beds, or even think about using deterrence and repellents. Um, Those people that can't afford it are obviously going to be at highest risk from getting bites and therefore at highest risk of contracting the disease. And then of course, you have to think about all the other demographic factors that put someone at higher risk. Um, You know, not only that, what we mentioned with socioeconomic status, but those who are at the extremes of age who are, who are more susceptible and those who are afflicted by poverty have low access to health care typically and um, and of course chronic medical conditions are going to place people at greater risk of severe and illness, um, disability and unfortunately even death uh, from these types of diseases so you know, I really do think it's part of our role and it seems to be a collective calling for us in this space right now that is really our job as health advocates to think about those who are most at risk and help those who are really least equipped to help themselves.
0: And with that, it's time to return to our patient. How should he be treated and what is his prognosis now that we have his diagnosis?
3: So with the diagnosis of, of dengue, if you have uncomplicated dengue, it's usually self-limiting and self-resolving. We usually treat patients with acetaminophen and hydration, um, which our patient clearly requires. But because our patient also has dengue hemorrhagic fever, this exacerbated sort of outcome of dengue, we need to do additional fluid management for our patient. So that'll start with fluid repletion to maintain um, the sort of pl- internal vascular plasma volume um, and permit uh, and limit the plasma leakage, um, and then also prevent progression to full blown shock or dengue shock syndrome. Um, fluid is only part of this picture. We also need to carefully manage dengue shock to prevent volume overload as we try and manage this shock generally and replete these fluids back. Also, due to the vascular permeability and sort of coagulopathic um, presentation of this patient, if there's significant internal bleeding or blood loss, Um, then we may need to add blood or blood products to this patient. All of this is best administered in an ICU setting if one is available, and the prognosis is generally good. Um, Dengue hemorrhagic fever has a mortality rate of 2% to 5% if treated, but if it's left untreated or treated poorly, it has a mortality rate that can be as high as 50%. In this case, at least, what ends up happening to Mr. B is that he's fortunate to have this treated, and that's because the providers in this case are following his cell lines very closely to watch the progression of his coagulopathic state um, and prevent further progression of the shock.
0: All right, so at least relatively good news for our patient. Um, And to wrap up the ending of this case, I want to circle back again to the climate change connections. You know, we already talked about how it led to conditions that promote and increase the risk of arboviruses and mosquito-borne disease. But taking Mr. B's case, what can he as an individual patient do to avoid contracting this disease again? And given all of the environmental risk factors that we spoke about, is this even an issue that can be solved at the individual patient level, or does prevention moving forward really require
2: a kind of public health infrastructural intervention point of view? I think this is a multi-level problem. And so at the individual level, we as healthcare providers can educate our patients like Mr. B about the links between dengue and exposures to mosquitoes during monsoon season, not just limited to dengue or any other like arboviruses that may necessarily be that they may be susceptible to. Um, we can counsel them on how they can reduce their exposure um, and protect their communities as well through the use of like mosquito nets or chemical prevention and so on. At a more high at a higher level so from the public health lens, we can do things such as implement a disease surveillance system to help monitor for outbreaks and once enough data has been gathered, maybe even predict this with um, modeling in order to develop like early warning systems. And then this can eventually help guide public policy as well. It's also really important that we do public outreach and educating the masses about infection prevention. In this situation in particular with respect to dengue, this includes educating people about proper storage of water, proper disposal of waste, um, in order to prevent the breeding grounds for mosquitoes. And then using clothing that can offer f- uh, full coverage. And then, as we talked about before, uh, utilization of things like mosquito nets or even insect repellents as well.
0: Got it. So it takes a multi pronged solution for such a complex issue. And that seems pretty similar to most situations in medicine, especially when we're talking about diseases that are so wrapped up in this climate change and health nexus. So thank you for wrapping up the case so nicely and to all of you for walking through this case with me. Um, To end the podcast, I'll turn it over to each of you to say if you have one distilled lesson or takeaway for listeners
2: from today's episode, what would it be? So I can start off our world is changing and it's changing in ways that are like pretty unpredictable at this point in time and some things we can teach ourselves about. And it's really important that we are able to guide our patients through these sort of unexpected changes. And so with all the efforts that we've been trying to do with this project and with some of the other projects that, um, the climate, uh, resource for health education has been, um, implementing, um, it's really important that we focus our efforts and prepare our patients well for um, what is to come.
3: Yeah. So for me as a medical student, seeing this sort of, um, this case really rely on a lot of basic approaches to medical care, even though it's an international, like complex case, maybe one that we learn about only briefly in medical school, it uh, ultimately comes down to the fundamentals of managing shock um, from a clinical perspective. But also since this case is an international case, I think it's important as a medical student to realize that being trained on these sort of infectious diseases that we don't necessarily see in our backyards right now is something that's going to benefit us in the future as these diseases become more prevalent in our spaces and in our practices. And of course, um, the big takeaway for me is just to wear your mosquito propellant.
1: Well, you guys set me up pretty well. Um, I would say the craft and the art of medicine, right, is is what you've seen over the course of your career and what you recognize. So if you're a clinician and you're meant to be a diagnostician um, as a result of that, so much of what we do is reliant on that pattern recognition. But this gets a lot harder um, when the environment around us is changing uh, quicker than, than we're used to. And so you've got to keep your mind open to the possibilities. In other words, you've got to keep your differential a bit broad. Uh, as we've heard, malaria is back in Florida and in Texas. So someday, dengue too. <laughs> uh, we might be headed into uncharted waters, but rest assured, your practice and with your practice, you're going to continue to remember how to swim. So um, I'm just uh, thankful for everybody's engagement and interest in this space.
0: All right. That's an inspirational note to end on. So Thank you all so much for joining me on this episode of Code Green and for writing this great case. Thank Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Code Green, the Climate Smart Health Professional. Thank you again to Douglas and Drs. Islam and O'Connor for talking with us about mosquito-borne infectious disease and climate change. If you want to learn more about ways that climate change and health intersect and find out more about ways that you can get involved, check out Medical Students for a Sustainable Future and the Global Consortium on Climate and Health Education. If you'd like to find this case to integrate at your own institution, check it out on the Climate Resources for Health Education website, which is climatehealthed.org. This podcast is hosted by Jenny Silva and produced by Natasha Sood. This episode was sound edited by Liana Hickes. This podcast series could not have been possible without support from Medical Students for a Sustainable Future and the Climate Clinic podcast at the Global Consortium on Climate and Health Education. We want to acknowledge the Indigenous lands that we're recording from. I'm recording from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which sits on the traditional homelands of the Lenape people. And lastly, we want to hear from you. Just send us an email at codegreenclimatepod at gmail.com or DM us on social media. Our Instagram is codegreenclimatepod. And our Twitter is Code Green Pod. Finally, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this show. Thank you again for tuning as a Code Green, the climate smart health professional. We'll see you next time.